My name is Shafiq Abdusabar. I am a black man, a Muslim. I'm a police officer for 19 years. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a son. I'm a grandson. I'm an uncle. I'm a nephew, a neighbor, a friend. I'm an artist. I'm a writer. What's currently going on in this country right now between police officers and black people, we need to come up with an immediate solution. Last night, two police officers were killed in Mississippi. Two weeks ago, a police officer was killed in New York. Prior to that, we had the incident between the police and Freddie Gray in Baltimore. Walter Scott, and the list goes on and on. These incidents, we must come up with immediate solutions. And My belief is good morning. Part of that solution for today me. is Wednesday, August 10th, 2006. This is Urban Talk Radio 103.5 FM, where you will hear conversation, information, education, inspiration, motivation from the American urban perspective. Urban Talk Radio is also being simulcast on New Orleans Talk Radio, NOTN, an interactive media website that features 24-hour radio, video streams, articles, blogs, and information on social, living, and current news issues. That video clip I recorded back in May of 2015 and uh, I had actually went for a run with my son to try to debrief my own self, kind of relax. We had a, that particular month, we had a, a rash of police-related shootings, and then we had a retaliation of police officers also killed. And what's really disturbing now is it's August, and it seems like we're right back in that same pattern. So it does not appear much has moved on the scale for police community relations in America. And although many of the news channels over the last couple of months have spent a lot of time talking about uh, Black Lives Matter and police and police shootings and officers being shot, today I want to turn, turn the page and let's talk about some solutions. Of course, we can't discount the incidents that continue to occur. Most recently, last week, there was yet another video surfaced by Chicago PD that took place, officer-involved shooting, very graphic. And uh, they actually, the, the police chief released the video within about three days of the shooting, which was pretty much unprecedented. But the calls from the community put a lot of pressure on the chief. And as a result of that, he released the video and immediately stripped three officers of their powers while this is an under investigation. And now Chicago, once again, is protesting these shootings. So in the studio today, I have Ray Hassett. He is a retired New Haven police lieutenant. He is also a police instructor. And he's been going around country, I believe, going around the world, teaching 
a new concept about police tactics and police engagement. And a lot of folks have been spending a lot of conversation on talking about training. I've, I've actually written a lot about training, education of officers being a solution to addressing those problems. And then we've had on the show previously experts talking about implicit bias and the fact that some of this cannot be trained out of an officer. So I wanted to have Lieutenant back into the studio this morning. Good morning, Lieutenant. Good morning, Shafiq. And um, really want to talk about, you know, you and I both work in this profession for a very, very long time. You much longer than me. And, you know, when I came on in 96, I always believed that one of the best ways to impact the behavior of an officer when it comes to use of force and police tactics is a lawsuit that if an officer found themselves or the city getting sued or they being the cause of the city being sued, they themselves would slow it down and come up with a new way to engage the community or engage suspects or engage situations that often were kind of self-initiated, you know. Uh, But it appears that, that was just my theory, uh, it appears that even police officers being arrested, police officers getting convicted for some of these very controversial police-related shootings, that has not done anything to impact these situations that keep occurring. So I'd like to get your perspective on why why is that not impacting? I mean, is it, are police officers so built in? Or is there something so built in the package of being a police officer that no matter what, we're going to keep seeing these type of shootings? Well, I, I think that the, the lawsuits uh, and the, the arrests and the negative press uh, certainly has an impact. Um, in a negative way. Uh, it may make you even more um, reluctant to actually do proactive work. I think the, the answer to it is that we're looking for some, some positive modeling on how to make this paradigm shift. Uh, law enforcement really is, 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 is in, a, uh, in, in a state of flux now. Our whole job description is changing. Uh, what's required in order to do this job is very different than what was required uh, back in the day. So, so tell us when you got on. What what year was it? Uh, I came on in 1987. Okay, so tell us just for the, for the viewers and the and the listeners, what is the difference between when you came on in '87 and now the job description? Uh, in 1987, your role was much more clearly defined. The public accepted who you were, who you were and what your role was. Uh, there was an understanding there. There was an understanding of the etiquette of a police officer's job. Uh, when you responded to the scene, people already knew where they fit. That changed over time uh, as people became, uh, life experience changed. People uh, have less and less contact with other people today 
young people, uh, because of social media, have less and less contact, uh, less and less experience in mitigating conflict. Um, video games have changed the way young people see authority, see themselves. Uh, if you're playing a lot of video games, um, it, you know, you always win. If you don't, it, when you don't feel like playing anymore, uh, <laughs> you don't play anymore. Uh, if I'm, if you and I are talking on Facebook and we have a disagreement, I can unfriend you. So the, the real life hardwired people skills are gone. So that is why we have to change the way we we're, we're training police officers. Now, some people might say in the audience, you know, well, are the hardwired people skills for police officers gone as well? Is that why we continue to see the systematic breakdown? You know, the criticisms that I've heard um, really hard over the last two weeks from, you know, around the country, folks have been saying, yeah, but you're the police and you have the power to use deadly force. You're getting paid. We're paying you in our tax dollars. We expect that you would would exercise, you know, even more patience, even more control, even more fairness and discretion. And and they're saying we just not we're not seeing it. So so are the police hardwired skills? Is it is it becoming part of the the landscape as well? The lack of that. I, I think we we have to train in a different way. The hardwired skills about about. Uh, Defense, threat, um, managing safety issues, um, those are well-trained with police. The, the skills to read emotion, the skills to read the emotion of the person they're dealing with, um, really are not enhanced enough, and I w- I'll clarify that. Um, in, during my career, I had three different street names. Uh, the first was the evil one. The second was hassle, which I kept right to the end of my 25 years because I kind of was in everybody's business, but in a good way, I think anyway. But the last five years of my career, my street name, which I took great cry, great pride in, was the Crazy Whisperer. And what that meant was that I became a better listener. I talk less, I listen more. The more I listened, the more I saw. The quieter I was, I found that the people who I dealt with became the same way. So I think the way we're training now, the way I train now, first of all, is to model this behavior. Police officers have to see, just like anybody else, they have to see that this behavior works. When they see it work in, in, uh, in action, then there's a buy-in for it. Then that's where you begin the training. You have to show them first that it works. And the way we train is brains of the boss. People start computing, people start communicating way before they, they start talking. So but even before, when you call the police, people are already, their brains are computing. Are they anxious? They're going over their last experience with a police officer. Was it a good one? Uh, was it a bad one? What have they heard about police? So by the time a police officer actually goes one-on-one in contact with someone, so much other communication is going on. So the way we're training is really before we get down to what the nature of the call is, let's deal with the emotion. We're teaching emotion as a second language. And if you're just joining us this morning on Urban Talk Radio, 
we're continuing our discussion on coming up with solutions around police shootings and police engagement. And it's a series solving problems with bullets instead of words. Joining us in the studio now, I have Hilda Kilpatrick. She is a retired detective for over 30 years, mm-hmm. you know, 30 years of service. She was on our show a couple of weeks ago, and um, you know we wanted to pride ourselves in actually having a perspective on this national conversation from a female. Uh, the, the news has been dominated by male police officers, retired police officers, uh, male police consultants, and we have not heard this conversation um, from the perspective of a woman in law enforcement. And I think the last time we, you know, I want to pick up on a conversation that we were starting the last time you were on Hilda, and it was really this this mindset of if police officers are using force as, you know, under the direction of their next breath is their last or, you know, they're really, really in fear of their life. If you actually look at the the, the psychological compact, you know, of how policing is done, then women idealistically would seem to fall more on, they would fear their lives, potentially, as a theory, more than men would. But what we don't see, we know that the men in law enforcement are bigger, they're stronger, right? But we know that the you only need about 12 to 8 pounds to pull that, that, that trigger. Got that right. So if you can pull it 12 to 8 pounds, it really doesn't matter what your size is. But in the concept, in the concept, right? Because there is training that says if you're outmatched by size, if you're outmatched by force of an individual, whether that individual technically is armed or not, if you're losing... As the lieutenant said, if you're losing that battle, you can use deadly force. So, you know, it's why don't we see? Why don't we see more incidents of women in law enforcement using deadly force? Okay, one of the things that uh, I had stated last week, it has a lot to do with self-confidence. It has a lot to do with uh, communication. Uh, women have a tendency to be more calmer. We communicate better because we have to communicate with our kids. And one of the things, uh, when I was on the street, I always, like if I was communicating with a kid, if I went um, and there was a problem with a kid. So I would talk to this kid like I would my child. Okay, I said, okay, come here. Okay, what's the problem? And sometimes the kid would have an attitude and he says, oh, you're not my mother and blah, 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 this and that. And I said, no, not at this time. I don't want to be your mother, but I'm here to uh, because your mother called because there's a problem with discipline. Uh, You know, you threaten your mother. You refuse to do X, Y, Z. And so after the common effect, um, you know, telling him to sit down and talk, I said, do you understand what direction this is going in? And um, how would you feel if somebody... Um, disrespect your mother like you disrespect your teacher or me or or somebody like that. And so sometimes you can kind of like get across to them and then again, they can't. But it has a lot to do with, in my opinion, it has a lot to do with parenting, the way the kids was brought up, uh, whether or not they were mentored as far as respect. Um, When it comes to female officers not shooting anyone is 
you know, as they've been saying. Um, if I got into that situation that I would have to shoot somebody because of my training, you know, just like I tell people, the job, people look at policing, no matter how you look at it. Okay, they come a point in time. There are bad people out there that you're going to have to kill somebody. That's why people call 911. I keep stressing this over and over again. Why do people call 911? Because they feel threatened. And why do they feel threatened? Because they can't take care of the situation themselves. So, um, and then it has a lot to do with body language. You know, people can tell if you are afraid. I never forget one day I was working. And when I was a detective, nobody didn't know that I was a detective. A lot of people look at me just, you know, Susan me out there walking down the street going to the ATM. So I went into the ATM and I saw this kid standing out there by the tree. So when I came out, I started walking and he started walking behind me. So I turned around and I put my hands on my hips and I said, is there a problem? He goes, no, 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 no. I said, so, um, what are you doing out here this time? And he goes, no, nothing, just walking around. Now, this goes back to an incident when I was working in robbery burglary. I caught a kid that had committed a robbery. Um, he had snatched the lady pocketbook. So I said to the kid, I always like to get into people's minds. And I said, tell me something. If you saw me walking down the street, would you run up and mug me? I mean, would you attempt to? He goes, no. And I said, so why not? He goes, oh, because you're walking like you got an attitude. You know, you're acting like if I do, you're going to put up a fight. And I said, so why did you take this lady pocketbook? He said, because just by her seeing me put fear in her. And I know I could take the pocketbook. So, again, it has a lot to do with body language. Well, Tina, I'm going to turn back to you because that's been something that you've been talking about. Hilda on one side is talking about the body language of a suspect. And in this case, young people, which, in fact, police have been struggling to build a relationship with young people in the country for Ever. Uh, on your end, there's a new concept that you're teaching to police officers about slowing it down. And I recently watched uh, in detail the most recent Chicago police video of the officers shooting at the car, uh, going down the street. It was a stolen car. And subsequently, the black male took off running in the backyard the body cameras then went off when it came back on he was shot and they were handcuffed him he, he later died from the injuries of the gunshot and that turned into a whole piece going so you know what we're seeing on the news are these videos and we don't really see the suspect doing much we get to see the police officers doing a lot. And we know we're not seeing, of course, the entire, right, from start to finish. We recognize we're not seeing the entire video, but certainly what the community, what law enforcement officials and others are seeing is disturbing enough where they're taking this decisive action. Body language. How important is that for the officer as the community is interpreting that? Because we know what it's like when we and law enforcement look and say, wow, you know, this is going to be a bad one. Or this is going to be somebody I'm going to have to chase. Or this is going to be somebody I'm going to have to, you know, get in a karate stance or whatever, right? But what about the, in your training, do you do you take into account what the public is, is perceiving about the police officer as part of the training? 
Yeah, I mean, it's not, it, it, it's not the immediate goal, but it is a product of the training, uh, how the public sees us. And I think you're describing two different things. Once you step into that, we, we call it up on the emotional highway. Once we step on up to that emotional highway where uh, uh, fear on both sides uh, really hijacks our, 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 our brain a little bit, we call that an amygdala hijack, uh, it's very diffi- difficult to slow that down. Um, once you're in that zone where your life, both sides feel their life is threatened, uh, if I'm the guy running and if I'm the police officer chasing, it's very difficult to slow it down at that point. Now, people often, you know, it's come out and, and you hear uh, people that are not in law enforcement and other folks that are not even in, you know, science and they say fight or flight. It's fight or flight, right? Um, but in the concept of understanding fight or flight, because normally fight or flight is it's one person that's experiencing the fight or flight. And then the other person is not really counted in the concept. Mm-hmm. Is it possible that what's going on is there's both individuals are in fight or flight? Brains don't differentiate occupations. Brain operates the same way. Both sides are in fight or flight. Um, the art, at, at that point, you, you rely on your training. It, it, it's totally down to your training. The way we train, and my background in, is in hostage negotiation, and we train uh, elite anti-kidnapping units internationally uh, to slow it down. Uh, and the very first part of it, uh, of any, any terrorist event, any, any uh, hostage event, is dealing with that emotion. So really, the, the art of de-escalation, the art of being able to read body language, both sides, starts before you you hit that panic button if you can keep somebody out of that that fight or flight by your body language by slowing down your voice by listening to that person because everybody's got a story to tell uh there's a good chance that you can bring things back down to where people are less frightened more reasonable more assured and then you can get to the nature of what the call is but once you hit that panic button very difficult to stop that train after it's left the station. If you're just joining us today on Urban Talk Radio, we're talking about police shootings and solutions. And you can join the conversation on Facebook at Bull Minds and Twitter at Bull Minds. And remember that Urban Talk Radio is now being simulcast on New Orleans Talk Radio, N-O-T-N an interactive media website that features 24-hour radio, video streams, articles, blogs, and information on social living and current issues. Hilda, I want to turn this back to you and I want to give very, very specific on some of these videos that are coming out and some of the comments. And I'm sure you're talking to people and I'm sure family members are having conversations with you in a very intimate way. And, you know, just what are, what are the questions that you're getting asked? Well, some of the, the the majority of the questions that's being asked: Why do cops always have to shoot someone? Why can't they talk to the person? Why can't you shoot them in the leg? Um, you know, like you see on TV. Right. Uh, why can't you let them go? Why set can't up a you perimeter? let them go? And uh, you know where he live at? And uh, and my question to them: Okay, if you were this person. You call 911, you said this person had a gun, and he threatened you. 
you felt threatened because you couldn't take it to the situation yourself. You pointed a gun at you. Are we supposed to let the suspect go to come so, back to so harm you? So here's the other part of it. So, um, w- what we're seeing, though, what you're saying is exactly right, but right. what the videos are showing that these are not 911 calls. So right. Some of these are motor vehicle stops. Um, they're, they're self-engaged situations, right? So for those, I mean, what, what do you do? I mean, I mean, the recent shooting was a car chase. So that's a stolen car. We understand that. Right. Um, so you have to follow through on that. Um, the, the the Castro shooting was a motor vehicle stop. Right. So, the, you know, and he had a, a valid pistol permit. So, right. the, you know, the question that people are asking is, why you got to shoot the guy? Right. Why, why can't you do something different? Why? What is the rush? What's the urgency? And why does it keep happening? You know, what what can we offer law enforcement? <laughs> that's <laughs> because, a hundred. That's you know a, I mean, it's tough. I mean, it's tough because there's so many different incidents. And sometimes when it comes to video, you only see like certain parts of right. it. You don't see the beginning. Sometimes you see the in between or just the ending. So what? Well, as you said, like the incident with the stolen car. I mean, we were told, like, you chase a stolen car, but you never shoot at it unless the car is a threat to you. That's correct. And, and the car was traveling away. So away. There so no there threat. was no threat. In right. my opinion, that was a bad shoot. Right. Okay. And that, that's that my opinion. That turned into To everybody. Yeah, that's like uh, Ray said. Everybody, uh, you know, adrenaline is pumping and, mm. and things gets escalate. Because, I mean, when you're chasing a stolen car, I've chased a couple. And your heart starts pounding and somebody's calling it in and the supervisor goes, break it off, break it off. The car is moving away. So you break it off. But the idea is like, I got to get this guy. And the next thing you know, things kind of get out of control. And so in my opinion, that's what happened in, uh, where was that? In Chicago. That's correct. Right. And the Castro one, uh, that one, um, in my opinion, I have uh, approached cars and people will tell me, hey, look, officer, uh, I got a permit carry a gun, I'm a CEO, I'm a police officer, so-and-so, so-and-so. And I says, okay, um, just take one hand. I said, well, I always ask them, are you right or left? Right. And they said left. I said, would you just, you know, take your wallet out and let me see and that. But it's everybody reacts different. And as I said, it has a lot to do with how you feel about yourself as a person. Okay. I mean, Sometimes when you pull a car over, if the dispatchers say, now this is how the hyped up becomes. Say you get a call and the dispatcher goes like car 212124 or whatever. Um, uh, 17 just called in. There's a black car. Um, suspect uh, may have a gun in the car. And then he goes, okay, hold on. Elaborate. The suspect just did a 75. I mean, a homicide. Now you see that car. Your adrenaline is pumping because this guy just killed somebody. So now everything start like your brain start ticking. Oh, my God, is this guy going to shoot me? Uh, are we going to do this? Do we have enough backup? Things like that. I, I, as I said, it's hard to just say one size fit all when it comes to a police. And it is so, so hard. But the incident with the guy uh, that had the gun permit, in my opinion, that was a bad shoot. I mean, because the guy never threatened him with the gun. He just said, you know, I want to get my permit. So, Lieutenant, people come on to the, part, the departments around the country. There's, you know, there's 
big conversation now about psychologicals and um, the psychological tasks and the fitness tasks. And so for the, for the people in the audience, there's a couple of processes to get on and go through the civil service process. One is you fill out an application, take a written exam, not necessarily um, the written exam in the physical uh, portion of it is the same, but they call it the agility. So you take a you fill out an application, you take a written exam, you pass that, you move on to the often the physical agility. You have to run a 1.5 mile in a certain amount of time, do some push-ups, do some sit-ups, do some bend and reach, stretching tests. Then you either do a psychological and it's combined with the polygraph. Then you normally go before an oral board for that town or location. And then at that point, they do a background check and then you get on the job. What it appears that is not happening, Lieutenant, is there's no more psychologicals being given in law enforcement after that. So once you get on and you're on for five years or 10 years or 15 years, no one's bringing you back to check and see where you are mentally on the job. That's, that would be my one um, point that I'd like for you to address. But I'd like for you to address in conjunction with there is a concept in training that you only train sometimes people at 50% speed. And at the 50% threshold, you only get a little bit about how that person would react under stress or under duress. It is a, another concept in more military training of that they use for, uh, you know, the Navy SEALs and others where they take them beyond the threshold. And so they come as close to them responding in a real-life situation given their psychological mindset that they can go. And that really allows the difference between why Navy SEALs and some of these other special forces are so much more effective in operation procedures than others because the military analysts can almost pinpoint exactly where it's going to fall apart and where it's going to succeed. We don't use that in law enforcement. Is that one of our major issues right now? Do we need to train officers at that threshold? I believe so. And I think to your point, uh, some of the data has revealed that um, because Navy SEALs and, and those elite units train way beyond uh, the, love, the, the normal level everyday stuff, when they get in that zone where things are hot, their heart rates, their heart rates slow. They slow. Things get hotter, their heart rates slow down, which gives your brain uh, many more choices. We, on the other hand, we don't train at that level. So when you measure police officers, heart rates, and when things start to escalate, their heart rates escalate much earlier, which translates to maybe compromised decision-making. So I agree. To your first point about, about uh, follow-up psychologicals, um, I want to I reshift it to how proactive are we? Uh, in a police career is like no other. Um, you see a lot of bad stuff. You're exposed to a lot of bad stuff. You're exposed to a lot of adrenaline dumps. You're exposed to seeing things that no one sees. And, you know, going back to old school, old school, you're expected to... Suck it up. 
<laughs> say, suck it up. Suck it up. <laughs> suck it up. <laughs> you know, well, move on. Suck it up. Get and, over it. You'll and, see it again. <laughs> exactly. And how that translates, um, usually uh, police officers from that generation, uh, th- their survival rate really was about 10 years after the job, either physical, psychological, et cetera. But, but again, if you're going to run a marathon, you're going to be injured. Poli- a law enforcement career is a marathon. So we need to be more proactive in mental health training, normalizing uh, the damage, the psychological damage that you're going to go through. So instead of waiting to catch you when you start to break, we're, we're constantly repairing you uh, through just realizing that, listen, we eat right, we exercise, we do all the physical stuff to keep ourselves straight. But again, we don't take much care of our psychological needs. And we are probably the only occupation who sees the worst of humanity and is required to do something about it. If you're a, if you're a counselor or a therapist, you see people once a week. Uh, if you're a, a doc in the ER, people come to you. Cops, us, we're dealing with you and the public, everybody, even our own, at their very worst moments. So we need to basically take care of our brains, our minds, and our bodies. I just want to say one thing in regards to uh, evaluation when it comes to police and psychological. Uh, I always tell people, just because somebody is a marksman, they can go to the range and they can shoot 100, doesn't mean when they get into a shootout that they're going to be able to do it. Also, if a person is six feet two, doesn't mean that he got the heart to take on somebody else six feet two. Let me tell you about a little incident one time. Um, I was in the training academy with this guy. We went on a call. It was a domestic violence. The man was, you know, uh, intoxicated. We go in. The lady said, don't wake him up. Just cuff him. He shook the man. The man woke up, and my God, he was six feet two. He jumps up. He punches the officer just six feet two, wham, right in the face. The officer panicked grabs his face, runs out of the room and leave little five feet four with me in the bedroom with this man. I would never forget it as long as I live. Now, common sense kick in. I get in the corner because, you know, and I'm saying, this guy, he goes, I'm going to kill you. He looks at me and I says, no, not today. I got two kids to raise, not today. So the guy comes toward me. I take out my gun and I said, listen, it's just me and you. I got two kids to raise and you're not going to take my gun. So I threw the guy the handcuff. Now I'm using common sense. What am I? I'm on the radio screaming, you know, you know, for a signal four to help. I threw the guy the handcuffs. Now my mind is thinking, what can I do? I said, handcuff your wrist to the bed rail. And he goes, what? I said, it's either that or else. So he says, okay, okay. I don't trust the lady with a gun because, you know, and so the guy handcuffed himself. So again, using common sense. I mean, here's a guy that's six feet two. Okay. I can't go near him near him because he could have took my gun. He could have threw me out the window. But, and so my thing is, I felt like, okay, I'm five feet four. I got a guy with me to six feet three. And he runs on and leave little old me in the room to handle mm-hmm. myself. So again, you, you, you know, and getting back to the subject of, of officers, there was an article, I think it was in the um, New York times. And I had said it all along. Officers have PSTD. And they need to start evaluating them for that also. Because some of the things that you see in a lifetime, like now, you can ride down the street on a street corner. And you can remember if you saw somebody shot there. If you saw somebody in a bad car accident with their head hanging off. You never forget these things. And I keep telling people that. 
you know, so officers do have PSTD. And I've been saying this for a long time. So finally, last somebody's began to look at it because it do exist. You know, both of those are really good points in terms of uh, the mental health of officers. And I think that is, that's a conversation that's starting to creep up. It's, I think the conversation around the race of officers and the ethnicity of officers and the race and ethnicity of the shooters just keep taking, you know, that takes front seat. You know, it's white officers shooting unarmed black men. And, you know, we know that um, from the information that we've also received that's been put out now and collected through the FBI Department of Justice on these shootings that, in fact, the majority of people that are shot and killed by police, we must put it out there, are actually white. The majority of people shot and killed by police in America are actually white. Um, However, the other part of that statistic is that a black male is five times more likely to get shot by the police than white males. So that really speaks to a a few things. Um, One is the history of race and ethnicity in our country. The other also goes to the status and the economic and cultural and social status of people in our country because we know that people with status are less likely to become a victim, right, of very specific things in our country, and police shootings is certainly one of them um, that we're dealing with. In our last few five minutes, I got the five minutes, so that's I split the fingers in half. That's two and a half fingers piece. For both of you. Um, But in the last five minutes, LT, between now and the next time we meet, which probably be about hopefully of 30 days, I can get you back on and we'll talk again. A message to police chiefs around the country. What's the message you got? You got, they're listening to you now. And right now, as of today, there was no police shootings at all. My message would be, first of all, your, 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 your personnel, uh, the people who work for you, are your most important asset. Uh, you really have to take care of them. Even when things are controversial, you have to step out in front and you have to frame it. You have to put it in context. You have the public really uh, knows half a story, a quarter story. Police chiefs really uh, are kind of like the parents of a family. Uh, if your family went through a crisis, you would need the head of your household, basically, to explain what happened, just so that everything is fair. Uh, the lifeblood of every police agency is patrol. They are the ones out in the front lines. They are the ones who absolutely, absolutely are, are putting their, themselves, their lives on a line to try to help the community. They have to be taken care of. Training would be my, my second suggestion. The, all the training we've talked about is, is uh, tactics, defensive tactics, um, operating in that, in that hot zone where it, it's, it's milliseconds to make critical decisions. Um, we don't give our patrol officers, we don't give our police officers enough training in managing people in crisis. Uh, I, I will go back to the 400 fatal police shootings in 2015, half of those shootings were with uh, uh, people with mental health issues, and that does not necessarily mean mental illness. Somebody could be having a super bad day where their decision-making capability is compromised. 
learning to read that, learning to slow it down, learning to keep people out of that hot zone is an art. We need to spend more time teaching police officers that. That's going to keep them and our community safer. Hilda. Okay. Um, one of the things I would suggest is that the police chief set the tone. Okay. He, a matter of fact, the police chief should have an open door policy for his personnel. So if they feel that they're not getting the help that they need from their commanders, they should be able to go in and talk to the chief about it. Also, one of the other things is um, training. We, we, we continue to talk about training. We can train people, train people, train people, train people. And when you look at training, police officers have been trained continuously. But the thing about it, with all that training and these mistakes are still happening. So in my opinion, you can train a person, but if they don't, if they insist on not taking that training with them and how to use that training. So it's, it's kind of like useless, you know, it, it's kind of like useless. And one of the other things, when a police department make a mistake, because in law enforcement, you will make mistakes. If you accidentally shoot somebody and sometimes it can happen, step up to the press and apologize. And all people want is respect. All people want is like, don't act like I'm stupid. I know what happened. And th- and this is one of the things that's going on now, you know. And if you and if you did something wrong, just apologize. And most people would accept an apologize, an apology. Thank you both. And I'm not going to do a lot of after talking because you're all the experts today on this thing. And this is going to be a long conversation that we're going to continue to have. But I really appreciate your insight today. I think that... Um, one of the things that the country's been missing is commentary from good officers, right? Commentary from officers that have not been under fire um, in conv- conversations from retired officers um, like yourself who have the knowledge and wisdom and we have the opportunity here, right, Lieutenant, to slow things down. Absolutely. <laughs> right? Slow it down and have the conversation that's needed to be had. So, Thank you both for joining me today on the radio. And if for our listeners, if you're just joining us today on Urban Talk Radio, we continued our conversation, our series, Solving Problems with Bullets Instead of Words. Uh, you can stream this show live on your smartphone or computer by logging on to newhavenindependent.org if you missed it. And remember, Urban Talk Radio now simulcast in New Orleans um, and is being simulcast on N-O-T-N, an interactive media website that features 24-hour radio streams, article blogs, and information on social living and current news issues. And, Lieutenant, you wanted to add in information about the program. Yeah, if you're interested in, in what we teach, if you can go to www.rayhassett.com, you'll see more. Okay. Love to see you. And thank you, Lieutenant, for joining us today on Urban Talk Radio. And thank you, Thank Detective. you also. Hilda Kilpatrick. If you miss any parts of this live broadcast, you can join our blog at bullminds.co to keep current on our latest shows and show schedules. Remember, Urban Talk Radio airs every Wednesday, 9 a.m. EDT. Thank you for tuning in. God bless America. I just want to dance.